of Mark, chapter 11, starts with verse 12. Up on the screen is the NIV. That's a little bit uh, different than what I'm reading, the NRSV. So uh, if you can find all of the differences, you win a lollipop. Just kidding. Okay, um, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. This is talking about Jesus. Uh, Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to him, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. He overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is is it not written, My house shall be called a a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered what he had said and said, Rabbi, Rabboni, look, a fig tree. What you have cursed has withered. Jesus answered, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to a mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea, but you have a doubt in your heart, uh, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but if you believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. Heavenly Father, we pray for boldness this morning. We pray for uh, the history that not only comes from the Gospel of Mark and before that the Gospel of Matthew that actually stretches back, that stretches through the line of the prophets, that stretches all the way back through Genesis, that you are a God who is a God of fruitfulness. Lord, we, we thank you that you are a God who is willing to call things as you see them that you are not willing to let us live in our own boundedness to our own self-destructive patterns, but that you see us as we truly are. Lord, we also thank you for the prophetic witness of those who have come before. We pray for the boldness to carry on their legacy, to to speak truth to power when it is necessary, to do what is necessary, to, to, if it is necessary, turn over some tables, get a little mad, perhaps not pick up a whip in these days, but something that is contextually applicable. Lord, we know that you are the God of all nations. You are the God, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and so we rest in you. Amen and amen. All right. Weird story. Less weird because you've all heard it. When I talked about Samson and there's lighting foxes on fire, you guys were like, never heard that one. Okay, that's true. And, and so we are going to be talking about Middle Eastern horticulture this morning, specifically figs, okay? And so if any of you fall asleep, I want to keep that under wraps. We do not want to give the village any more reason to think that we are primarily a, a dwelling place of sleeping people. <laughs> all right, okay. So, okay, so, so uh, you know, but we are going to be talking about Middle Eastern horticulture because it's, it's essential to this story. You hear what I'm saying? It's essential to this story. Jesus comes for the fig tree. He sees the fig tree and he says, there is something wrong here with this tree. 
And when we read the story, because we are not experts in ficuses, um, we might not understand it, especially because uh, even the scriptures themselves uh, kind of may lead us in English to a, a, a conclusion that, that might not be quite as accurate as what was, was happening uh, contextually for the people at that time. So I'm going to ask three primary questions this morning, titling this sermon, Jesus and the Fig Tree. One, what's with the ficus? All right, what's with the ficus? Uh, two, what does the ficus symbolize? And three, what does it mean that Jesus cursed the ficus? And I think that this third one, this third one's important for you to, to, to hear because, again, I think this is one of those ways in which uh, we might have a different understanding of what curse means uh, as, as opposed to uh, ancient Near Eastern Palestinian people uh, from the Jewish culture. They had a slightly different understanding, likely, than we do today, especially right after Halloween. It's important to talk about that. So what's with the ficus? What does the ficus symbolize? What does it mean that Jesus cursed? the ficus. So let me jump in. What is with the ficus, right? I heard a sermon when I was pretty young uh, at Hinsdale Covenant Church, not by either of their pastors at the time, who were wonderful human beings, but by their worship leader, who was in seminary, Joe Papado. Joe is uh, a big uh, kind of large man, bald head, beard, uh, fun guy, really funny. Uh, he was like the face of the church at the time. We all loved Joe. And Joe preached on this very passage, and he talked about how it's a mark. mark Jesus uses this as a sandwich. It's a story that's uh, the fig tree is telling the story about the temple. The temple is telling the story about the fig tree. It's a big sandwich. Um, but, but particularly in that sermon, he, he mentioned uh, this really interesting detail about fig trees that I'm going to get to. And I say that the sermon changed the trajectory because from that point on, whenever we talked about ministry, because it was around the time that we were starting to consider ministry as a potential vocation, whenever we talked about ministry, we would always go back to this like funny saying, we need to go to seminary so that we can find out about things like the fig tree. It was one of these things that when you read the Bible, we had just finished reading the whole New Testament in 40 days. If you've never done that, do it. It's awesome. It's, it's amazing. You, you, it opens the scriptures to your eyes in ways you never, if you go passage by passage, you'll never see it as a story. You go 40 days, the whole thing, you see the whole story mapped out. But there's a lot of stuff you got to know that in, the, in the passage by passage piece. That's what seminary, we thought it was going to be all about. Turns out, not as many Bible classes, a lot of pastoral care classes. It was still very fruitful and wonderful. But we needed to go to seminary, we kept saying, because we need to learn about things like the fig tree. And so basically, it's this. Middle Eastern figs on the fig tree were particularly unique in that it takes figs a long time to ripen. Okay? takes figs a long time to ripen. And so in a Middle Eastern, Palestinian, uh, you know, around Jerusalem, the, a fig tree around there, the fruit comes in, begins to come in, before the leaves. It's very unique. Uh, not, not many trees are this way. If you have an apple tree, you don't expect apples to start forming before the leaves. The leaves come first, then the apples. But in a Middle Eastern fig tree in, in, in Jerusalem, the fig tree, the fig would start to grow before the, the, before the leaves would. Okay, this is a very important point. What's with the ficus, right? And so when Jesus, also another interesting note about this fig tree, it's, it's, it's by the road, it's by the, way, the words wayside, okay? So this was not a fig tree in a vineyard. 
This was not an agricultural fig tree. Nobody planted this fig tree, okay? The fig tree was just there. And Jerusalem had a history of this, right? They let trees grow that were just for everyone. That's part of it. They didn't, you know, they, 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 they didn't come in and like LaGrange Avenue just, you know, cut everything down and put a road. They, they went with the land. They went, you know, they built the road around natural uh, resources. And so if there was a fig tree that was a good fig tree, it's producing a lot of figs, they would leave it there. Because they, even though nobody's going to make any money off of it, even though nobody's going to you know, be able to get any taxable income from it or anything like that, no, it's just that the fact that you can go and pick a fig, they thought that was beneficial for their society. And so it's nobody's fig tree, which means nobody is paying particular attention to the fig tree. It's an important note. Nobody's really paying attention to the fig tree because it doesn't belong to anyone. Okay, there's no farmer who, who is watering the fig tree or who uh, can tend and, and watch for illnesses or disease in the tree. It's just growing by itself. Perhaps the way God intends, I don't know. And so, even though in the scriptures it says, and you read this, right? I, I read this uh, right here. It says, um, let me read it again. Okay, so he's, he's hungry. Seeing the distance a fig tree was in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he'd find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. So even though it wasn't yet the season for figs, what we know of these trees, horticulturally, is that the figs actually would have been there. They just wouldn't have been ready yet. Okay? It wasn't the harvest time. It wasn't the season to collect figs yet. But it doesn't mean the figs shouldn't have already been there. This is really, really important. Because when Jesus is off in the distance and he sees the fig tree way up ahead, he can't see the little figs growing on it yet. All he can see is a tree that he can identify as a fig tree. And he can see all of these beautiful leaves, all of the beautiful plumage. And so as he walks up, he's expecting, well, maybe he's not because he's Jesus, he knows everything, but he's expecting, he would have been expecting to reach up into the tree. That's why it says he had to reach up into it. He couldn't even see that there was no figs because there were so many leaves. He would have reached up into it and felt around to feeling for soft fruit. Anybody who has had an apple tree or something like this knows sometimes one or two apples. So Jesus is going there, he's going, hey, look, I know it's not the season for figs, but maybe there's one special fig on a branch just for me because I'm hungry. And instead, he doesn't only not find one ripe fig, he doesn't find any figs. And this leads Jesus to the conclusion that no figs would be produced by this tree that season. If the figs hadn't started yet, they weren't getting ripe by harvest. You're like, what does this have to do with anything, John? I promise you, I'm getting there. If the figs weren't there yet, they weren't coming in. Jesus was not hangry. Right? He wasn't just mad that the fig tree didn't have fruit, and he's like, kaboom! You know, that's not what happened. Jesus is going, he's, he's reaching up, he's saying, this fig tree is not serving its purpose. Jesus sees the fig tree off in the distance, and Jesus tells us that appearance does not equal substance. 
want you to hear that again. Jesus tells us that appearance does not equal substance. I did not know Phil was going to be so brief with his things. Otherwise, I would have put this video up there that I saw on BuzzFeed the other day that was um, all of these. I'll just tell you the story. It was all of these things. Actually, I knew a guy who did this, a professional photographer, how they take pictures of food. Anybody seen this video? Come on. Anybody? Anybody ever owned a Middle Eastern fig tree? Okay, same number of people. Great, I'm on my own here. Okay, um, so in this video, basically, <laughs> man, I can't even like, ugh. Okay, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. That's fine. All right, so basically, they take a yogurt, right? They take a yogurt, and they're like, yogurt parfait. We want to take a picture of this. It's at McDonald's or whatever, or whatever. I'm not bashing on McDonald's. Just, it's at a restaurant, and they bring in a photographer, Anybody who's ever had a yogurt parfait knows if you put blueberries and raspberries and strawberries on top, what do they do? They go right down. But if you see a picture for yogurt parfait, the raspberries and blueberries and strawberries are sitting right on top. That's because they actually mix the yogurt with glue. Fun, right? Because nobody's going to eat it. All they care about is the appearance. Uh, uh, Whoppers... When they take pictures of Whoppers, you know, they're like real flat in real life. I forget what it was. I think they were putting, car- they could put cardboard between each one of the elements to give it lift. Turkeys, they don't bake those turkeys before they take pictures and put them up in the grocery store. This is what your turkey would look like. They don't bake it. Ain't nobody got five hours to pay a photographer to sit there waiting for a turkey. Come on. I mean, my vegan turkeys take 20 minutes in the oven. PSA. But, um... From frozen, thank you very much. <laughs> but their turkeys, they don't, no, no, no. They, they just put motor oil on them to make them brown. Appearance does not equal substance. Jesus identifies this very early in the story. He looks off in the distance, he says, hey, this looks really good. But there's a problem. And I want to say, in our culture today, This is a critical issue. Critical. Say that one more time. In our culture today, this is a critical issue. Because we live in a time of curated culture. Curated. You know what a curator does in a library? A curator goes through and picks out the bad stuff, they keep the good stuff in, they buy more stuff that they need to keep the library up and up. That's what a curator does. We live in a time of curated culture. Every single one of us has the opportunity to curate the way in which we are seen, the way in which people perceive of us. We do it with this device. Or if you're not an Apple user, you're dead to me, but... (laughs) No, just kidding. We do it with this device. We go on and we go, oh... I want to take a picture of myself that looks like I just woke up. So let me go take a shower, put on a bunch of makeup, let me very carefully mess my hair up just the right way, lay down in bed, just woke up. (laughs) This is is a serious problem. This is how we do most of our communication today curated. We curate ourselves. 
And so we focus almost entirely on appearance and almost nothing on substance. Do we care about the substance? You know how many people I know go do fun things just so that they can Instagram them? Got to go skydiving. Why? It's got to be on Insta. You're going to jump out of a plane? Yes. Why? Do you like heights? No. But this girl I like likes heights. Curated culture. And here's the thing. I say that it's a critical issue now because of social media and other things. Um, Totally and completely. 100%. But it existed then too. That's what the story is about. See, if Jesus just cursed the fig tree and that's all the story is about, you wouldn't have the part in the middle about the temple. See, what happens is Jesus sees the fig tree. He reaches up into the fig tree. He sees that there's no figs. He says this, all about appearance, no substance. Not feeding anyone. Not doing its job. So then he goes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple And he says, not teaching people about God, not teaching people to care for the poor, not teaching people, instead, selling sacrifices. They've lost entirely their focus on what the prophets and the, and, and the leaders of the faith had told them what to do. They had lost entirely their grasp on what they were supposed to be doing. And instead, they had diluted it down into a single practice, the sacrificial system, which Phil talked about last week. It was not that effective. And they had completely reduced the culture into a system of buying and selling. And then you say, okay, Jesus, but, you know, Does that mean that we should turn over the tables in the Lucia market because we can't buy and sell things? One, that would be hilarious. But no. It wasn't about the fact that they were buying and selling them. It was entirely about the fact that when when, when, when ancient readers would have read this, they would have known exactly what they were talking about. At that time, it was not the sacrificial system. If you read Leviticus, which we're not going to get into today, it was such that there was a hierarchy... There was a hierarchy of sacrifices based on income level. So if you were a high income level, you had to give, and with a, you know, if you, if you were, had a, a thousand sheep, you had to give your best sheep. But if you were like a peasant, you had to like find a pigeon, all right? It wasn't a great, like, like we don't talk about it because we talk about the sacrifices that were for Israel. Those were really good sacrifices. That was the fat and calf and all this stuff. But, they, but, but the sacrificial system was set up to protect people who couldn't afford the great sacrifices. That's how it was set up. So, so, so what they did, what these, what these guys in the temple were doing is they were saying, hey, look, they would come in there with no sacrifice and they would tell them that they needed a sacrifice that was greater than the sacrifice that they actually were assigned to. And then they would overcharge them for it. That's why whenever you see uh, pictures of this, Jesus is whipping the money changers out of the temple and there's a bunch of livestock like, <laughs> like right, like that's what's going on here. Because there's sheep and goats running out because they were supposed to bring the goat from their flock. But these people were so poor, they had no goat. So they show up and the, and, the, and the Pharisees were sitting there and the scribes were sitting there and they were going, hey, look, 
we know that you can't afford a goat of your own, so we're going to sell you a goat. By the way, there's a temple tax, and then we're going to, you know, our scales are not going to be super balanced, so you're going to get overcharged. And, and all these things. And so it was creating a system of systemic poverty and injustice for the people. And that is why Jesus says it's a den of robbers. In other words, he sees the temple and he goes, the appearance of the sacrificial system and the way that this is all working is beautiful. There's no fruit here. No one's being fed. And so I'm done with it. And so that's the first two answers to our first two questions. And I'm perfectly right on time, even though my sermon timer is still over at the Twin Towers. The first two answers, what's about the ficus? Well, the ficus should have had fruit and it didn't. Even if it wouldn't have been ripe, it just didn't have any. Jesus knew it wouldn't produce. And secondly, what does the ficus symbolize? It symbolized the culture of appearance over substance, over, of injustice, even though it was biblically justified injustice, and justice. And so my final question does Jesus actually curse the fig tree? And by extension, does Jesus actually curse the temple? Because if you haven't read the New Testament, Jesus talks often about the, new, the temple being leveled or raised or torn down. It was one of the things that got people most upset. And, and, and many scholars and, and, and pastors will point to, well, Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. Jesus was talking about him as the temple. Jesus was the temple. And he was going to be crucified and raised three days later. And that's true. But it should not be lost on you historically that the temple also was destroyed. Jesus, as, as most of the Old Testament is, it was, it's, everything is a metaphor and then it actually happens. That's how it works. That's how Jesus does things. So he goes, hey, the temple's going to be torn down. And by the temple, I mean my body. And by my body, I mean I'm going to be raised from the dead. But also, the temple's going to be torn down too. Because the whole system's still broken. So does Jesus curse the temple and get the temple torn down in 70 AD or, or CE? Or does, and does Jesus kill the fig tree? I want to offer you that maybe our understanding of what Jesus is doing with the fig tree because we misunderstand the word curse. We may not fully grasp what Jesus was doing. Now some, like I said, this is, this is not, I'm not going to say that this is controversial, but this is uh, biblically. I mean, kind of, you guys are like, oh, so one scholar argues that another scholar are controversial. I'm not going to say this is controversial, but this is a difference in interpretation between scholars. Some scholars will say this is Jesus exercising his authority over all creation. I'm cool with that. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. I'm good with that. Jesus can kill fig trees if he wants. Fine. Works for me. However, other scholars, and I think this might be more in line with how the story is being presented as a whole, cast Jesus' curse as a fig tree more similarly to how God curses Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. And so I'm not going to read that passage right now, but, but it's important to note that when they come back to the fig tree, the fig tree is withered where? From the roots. That when God curses Adam and Eve in Genesis, what God is doing is not 
proclaiming a punishment on Adam and Eve. I'm going to say that again. God is not proclaiming a punishment on Adam and Eve. God is simply letting Adam and Eve know that the natural consequences of their decision are as follows. Might make us a little uncomfortable. This is the first, this is the, the ancient Hebrew understanding of the word curse. It's not a proclamation, it's a judgment. A judge who's acting does not proclaim, I'm giving you this. The judge says, these are the natural consequences that come from your actions. Or are they ought to. See, this is what Jesus does in Genesis when he says to Adam, he says, look, by the, by the sweat of your brow you will toil and you will attempt to produce and, 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 and it will be difficult. You'll plow the land and it'll be hard and rocky and, and rain won't fall when you want it to and all of these things. God's not saying, look, you disobeyed me and so I hate you and so I'm going to make it hard for you to produce food. God says, look, if you're not in the place where I'm producing food, you're going to have to figure it out. And it's not easy. I just make it look easy. And so Jesus, when he's pr pronouncing the curse on the fig tree, I wonder, bear with me for a moment, I wonder if Jesus is really reaching up into the fig tree, looking back at the disciples and saying, this fig tree is already dead. It just doesn't look that way yet. This fig tree has a problem that is so significant that none of the fruit is coming in. Not even like bad figs, no figs. And so he's looking down and he's going, look, the problem clearly isn't in the leaves. It's not work, any, any arborists out there? The problem can work in from the outside, from the leaves, or the problem can come from the roots. Changes things, right? Depends on how it happens. See, the problem's not coming from the leaves. We already knew that. The leaf, tree's in full leaf. It looks like it has figs on it. Problem wasn't coming from the top. The problem was coming from underneath. Jesus pronounces that the fig tree would never produce figs again. Not necessarily because Jesus didn't want it to, but because that was the natural consequence that came from whatever was wrong with the fig tree. Jesus says the temple will be destroyed, that the sacrificial system will be overturned, not because Jesus wants the temple to be destroyed and everybody to be thrown out and torn down, but because Jesus says the natural consequences of injustice for Israel was always their destruction from the beginning of time. The natural consequence for injustice was always destruction. In the time of Elisha, in the time of Elisha, in the time of Isaiah, in the time of Jeremiah, in the time of Micah, always their destruction. Friends, just as Jesus exposed the sickness of the tree, prophets forever have exposed sickness. They've seen injustice where it ought not be, and they've called it for what it is. The wickedness of the temple's injustice, the exposing of the poor, the unjust business practices, all of it. 
temple-sponsored oppression. Jesus was called to expose that system. Just as prophets through the entire Old Testament exposed their system. And folks, there's injustice happening all around the country right now. Hear it. It's just true. Mass incarceration, it's injustice. It is. We have more displaced refugees in this world than we ever have in the history of the world. Think about that for a moment. More than in the history of the world today. We have some who make just outstanding, unbelievable amounts of money that they will never use or spend or or even look at. And yet 40% of our world lives on less than $5 a day. Think about that. 40% on less than $5. We live in the richest country in the history of the world at a time when there are more refugees than a time when there are 40% of the world living in $5 a day. There's so much injustice and we are called to see it We are called to speak against it. We are called to stand up as Jesus did, as the prophets did, to those systems of injustice and say, How long, Lord? How long? How long? This is what the church is called to do. And here's the good news, because I'm not going to end on a bad note. (laughs) The good news is that exactly what Chris sang this morning with us, that Jesus has already given us the victory. That the chess match has already been played out, that maybe not all of the moves have been made, but that it's already done. Understand, church, no weapon, no weapon, can be formed against that will prevail. This is our good news. And so if it's a problem that you're struggling with personally, if it's a problem that you look at our society and you see us struggling with systemically, if it's somewhere in the middle, if you're mad understand God has already lived it out. And just as we sang this morning that what was meant for evil will be used for good, I proclaim it this morning that it is already happening. That it is, yeah, 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 woohoo, yeah. It's already, you see how reserved we are as a church. We're like, we're so Protestant, we're like, yes. It's already happening. Already thousands are taking attention. Already thousands. Already people who have no faith background are being led into the mission of Christ because they say, look, a church who cares, who's willing to fight. For the least of these.
And so regardless of everything else, know that the victory is already ours through Christ. That there is nothing that can overwhelm, that there is nothing that it can overcome. That there is no power in the world that, it is, that is as big or as strong as our God. And just as I have continued to say through this process, not only will God do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask according to his power within us, not our power, but his power within us, also, who God is for, no one can be against. Chris, you can come on up. We're going to sing a couple more songs. But let me pray for us this morning. Because weapons are formed against. They're brought. And they will not prevail. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, God, a God who is so desperately in love with creation, with humanity, that you put skin on, that you became one of us. And when you became one of us, Lord, you didn't use that power to lord over us. You used that power to lift us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who holds children on your lap, who says, let the little children come to me, that announces yourself as the good shepherd who seeks after the lost sheep, that announces yourself as meek and mild. But Lord, we also thank you that you are a God who does not look at injustice and turn the other way. We thank you that you are a God who has been driving out money changers from temples and proclaiming fig trees not worthy of their leaves for a long, long time. And so we thank you for what you've done. And Lord, above everything, we thank you for who you are because you truly are the God of the oppressed. Amen and amen.